Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. This is The Crossover, an NBA show hosted by Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix and Howard Back. It's a whole new level for you and me, Chris, this relationship. Like and subscribe for the best weekly NBA content these two are capable of. What does that mean? Could be the best duo ever. I don't see how you can beat that. Here they are, Chris Mannix and Howard Back. All right, Crossover, NBA podcast, Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. What up, Beck? What up, Mannix? Not a lot. Getting into the second round. Uh, looking forward to that. Clippers running into them. Shocking me and I think a lot of people with them getting past Dallas in the first round. I want to talk about Boston, too, and what the hell they're doing with their front office. But I think, Howard, the biggest story of this offseason so far is the future of the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, they just made a coaching change. They've not hired a new coach yet. And maybe there's a decision to make when it comes to Damian Lillard. So for that, uh, we want to bring in Dwight James. Does a tremendous job covering the Trailblazers for NBC Sports Northwest. And Dwight, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Big fan of the show. Well, just at least my part, not Howard's. Howard does his on Friday. It's, you know, it's, it's you know, it's okay. It's very average. Uh, so the slander. Quite, the slander. It is, it is slander. Um, Dwight, let's start here. The Blazers' loss to Denver, given the circumstances, 
around that. Denver missing their second-best player going out in six games. You've covered Portland for a long time. Like, Where does that rank among recent playoff defeats? In other words, was it more painful than some of the playoff defeats we've seen in years past? Yeah, Chris, I think so. In this case, there was no question that they believed they were going to win that series. With, with I mean, Denver's without a starting backcourt, including, you know, Jamal Murray, who's a terrific player, but Will Barton, who has hurt the Blazers in the past, former Blazer, and, and that's Portland's big advantage anyway, the backcourt, and so you see that advantage, and uh, it just didn't happen for them, and I think it turned out to be a very, very – disappointing time not only for the fan base but the players and coaching staff and front office so Dwight we already saw some of the fallout and this is predictable right um you lose in in, in a disappointing fashion and especially too many years in a row the coach goes and Terry Stotts had been one of the longest tenured in the league that's not surprising but ultimately do you think the Blazers failings at least in this postseason were more about coaching about personnel and if there's a personnel element to this is there any heat on Neil O'Shea and the front office? Uh, uh, well, there's certainly heat from the fans on the front office, and I think that's to be expected. Uh, I really believe, though, that the coaching change wasn't necessarily predicated on the playoff loss. I think that had been coming. When you're the 29th-ranked defense all season long, basically, and your GM had made changes uh, to bring the defense up a little bit, and it didn't happen. And quite frankly, um, they didn't defend well. One of the worst defensive teams I've ever seen here, Howard. And, and it, it was bad. It, it was really bad, and it continued to cost them in the playoffs. It, it's really why they lost. They just couldn't score enough points with a great offense to overcome their defensive failings. Yeah, and to that point, Dwight, like I, I forget which game it was, Dame had like 30-something in the first half, and they're down by 12 at halftime. Like that, you can't have a player like Damian Lillard go off like that and be down 12 at halftime and eventually wind up losing that game. Well, you know, and they... He he had the double overtime game where he scored 17 of their 19 points. He got him in to overtime. He got him into the second overtime just with unbelievable three-point shots. And they frittered that game away because they're terrible in overtime periods because the value of possessions in overtime is so big. you got to get a stop once in a while, and, and they just couldn't. So let's, let's talk then about about Lillard and his future. Now, as everybody knows, and you know better than all, Lillard has been as uh, strong a proponent for staying in Portland as you could possibly be. He loves the city, does remarkable things for the community, is as committed to Portland and the Blazers as any player in recent memory has been committed to a team and an organization. All that being said, what did you make of a couple of things. One was the Instagram post with the Nipsey Hustle line where I'm not cool enough to really understand every Nipsey Hustle line, but like it, it seemed to suggest there was a frustration there. And how many times do I have to keep doing this and not get the right result? Then there was the interview he did with Chris Haynes over Yahoo where he came out and said, I want Jason Kidd to be my head coach. What was your reaction to those, to, to Damian Lillard's responses in the aftermath of this series loss? 
Well, let's start, uh, Chris, with the Instagram post. And I kind of, I dismissed that a little just as a post by a player who's just lost a a series he had no idea he was going to lose. And that's just steeped in disappointment. So I kind of wrote that off. Now, the other part of this, uh, I think he's being pushed. I think Dame's being pushed by people around him, whether that be agents or media or whatever around him to make a pronouncement like that. And I think it backfired hugely on him. I think it, I think it stained him a little bit, quite frankly. Uh, and I, I think it's, you know, players are doing that nowadays, but I, I do think the way to do that is to go back channel with it. He, he can call Neil and say, Neil, Hey, I'm going to tell you who should coach and whatever. They have that conversation. It doesn't have to be in the media. And in this case, uh, the suggestion of, of Jason Kidd, did not play well in very liberal Portland, Oregon. And it wouldn't play very well in a lot of places, I'll tell you. Uh, not only the off-the-court stuff, but the fact that Jason, uh, I, I'm not familiar with him too much, but it, there's not a lot in his coaching resume that would lead you to believe he's the right guy for this job. I, I don't, And I don't think the team was going to consider him anyway, to tell you the truth. But I think it ended up being a bad move for Dame. And I think Dame does get consulted all the time on trades, free agent signings. That's the right thing to do. And they do it. So I I think this was just pushed out in the media too soon and and really not a good move, Chris. Yeah, that was pretty unusual. I'm not sure I'd ever actually seen um, a player make a move like that so so publicly, especially right in the wake of of removing the old coach. Um, But There was something else I read into that, though, Dwight. When Dame went that public saying who he wanted as his next coach, to me that said Dame wants to stay. Like, if he he had any thoughts of asking for a trade, demanding a trade, waiting a couple weeks and then doing it, whatever, if you have any thoughts of leaving, you're not going all in with a public request for a specific coach. So do you think that's an accurate read? Can we at least put that part of their offseason to the side that, if nothing else, we don't know who the coach will be. We don't know what the supporting cast will be. Are they going to trade C.J. McCollum finally? All these other things. Do we at least believe there's a pretty or a high degree of chance that they are not moving Dame Lillard at this point? Oh, for sure, Howard. I, I don't think there's any question. I'm not sure Dame wants to go, and I'm pretty sure the franchise doesn't want to make the move. It's just, and you talked about my initial my initial reaction to the whole thing was how many in how many jobs does one employee get to choose who the next boss is going to be? You know, and, and, and in the case of NBA players, they, they make those moves. But then let's just say, for example, he named the coach and they, they brought him in his coach. If that coach doesn't work out, the player's not going to get fired. The GM is. And, and certainly the player is going to say, oh, geez, I want out of here. We're not doing well. Trade me. Get me out of here. So, it's, it's kind of a, a can't-lose thing for a player to make that recommendation to get the guy he wants. And you know how it is. I, I'm an old-school guy, honestly, Howard. If I heard a player saying that, I'd say, hmm, what if he's looking for a guy who doesn't want to make him play or doesn't make him play defense, you know? And, and uh, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I, I think it's unseemly in the public to go about your business that way. So let me ask this in, in a two-part way. What if it's not moving Lillard? What does Neil Olshay do here? Obviously, he brings in a new coach, but are you expecting something substantive to happen? And substantive usually involves CJ McCollum, who's who's the most movable piece on the roster, still an appealing guy across the league. Or 
Do you expect what we've seen in recent years where they've nibbled around the fringes a little bit, they brought a bunch of wing defenders in last year, and maybe cross your fingers and hope Zach Collins comes back healthy, which we haven't seen in years at this point? Uh, what, What do you think, what are you expecting the Blazers to do looking forward? Well, Chris, I I do think that there are changes on the horizon if they can do it. You know, and the problem here is they never have been able to attract free agents to this state. It's, you know, the travel's horrible to any other NBA city. And and you've got situations like the weather and you've got a high state income tax that a lot of people don't talk about. But it's huge when you make twenty five million dollars a year. So all of those are against the free agent market. I do think. Uh, CJ's always been the guy with an X on his back when it comes to trade talks. He's the most available and he's the one they think they can afford to let go. Anthony Simons is coming on as a backup and they might feel they can play him and Dame together. I know they're going to make a run at Powell to keep Norman Powell in Portland. I'm not so sure how successful they will be with that. But they're going to make a run at that. And if they do get Norman Powell back, then I think CJ is probably gone for sure. But now the other part of that is what can you get for CJ? And I think you're going to have to put something with him to get, you know, a difference maker, a big time difference maker. So uh, that's going to be a big roll of the dice whenever that happens. You know, there's rumors. And I, I don't I don't know. You guys are kind of the same way. I, I don't like to play the fantasy trade market, throw a bunch of names out and say, well, they can do this and this mm-hmm. and this. I, I don't know who's really available and who they can get. And I'm not a good cap guy either to figure out all that math. I thought I thought Nurkic was disappointing, too. Like, I mean, uh, that's another that's guy there, Dwight. The, you know, Chris, that's the guy who I think could get bundled with cj if you could get a big back you know and and again you mentioned zach collins zach collins is a good player but they can't keep him on the floor and that that's you know the best ability is availability and in his case that hasn't been there too often so uh if they could get a big back uh particularly one that fit better with their system i think uh that's a real possibility because i think when you put nurkic together with CJ, that's a nice package, and and you just hope that Nurk can stay healthy. Again, you know, once he gets away from Portland, which seems to have the big man injury curse going for decades now, you, you you're going to get a pretty decent player. So we know the next coach uh, will not be Jason Kidd, who apparently pulled himself out of the running after uh, Dame went public with his request. So did that did that stink to anybody else? Like that stunk to high heaven to me. Like you know, how does J- how does Jason's name get out there in the first place in such an in- like such a prominent way? And then well, sorry, sorry to interrupt was, you there, Beck, was, but that no, that stunk to high heaven. It was you guys, you're right about that totally. And and really, he wanted the job. I, I'm sorry, but he wanted that job. There's every indication he did. But I'm sure he was told he's not getting the job. So the best thing to do then is you can't fire me. I quit. You know, and it's the same <laughs> idea. I, I'm not involved in this. Uh, you know, I was not spurned for that job. I bailed out on it. So I think exactly. that's what happened. Exactly. I feel like we're seeing that a lot more in the NBA these days. A lot of these preemptive kind of, you know, I'm withdrawing my name before they don't hire me anyway. It seems like that's been a new trend the last few years. Uh, all right. So who is it then? Is it Chauncey Billups? Is it uh, somebody off the board? Do they think they need to go with someone who has absolute experience because you're trying to make that leap with a team that still is on the Dame Lillard clock? So do you want somebody who hasn't done it before? Although I would say Chauncey Billups was ready, you know, probably five years ago uh, just based on his, his overall resume and, and his makeup. But is there any sense of where this is heading? 
You know, Howard, I, I think Chauncey Billups was their guy all the way along. And and the thing that happened, when, when the Jason Kidd stuff comes out, Chauncey's name gets thrown out too. And then all of his past comes back out on social media. And I think that gave them some pause. And, and I, I do think um, he he's what they're looking for in terms of, of a real presence as a head coach who can get through to players and be tough. I think they're looking for somebody who's going to coach a little harder than Terry Stotts did. Uh, and I, I, the other name that kind of makes some sense to me is Ime Udoka. Uh, Ime uh, is a Portland kid. He went to Portland State and he uh, played for the Blazers. And he's got a pretty good background of working for Pop, worked in Philly. Now he's in Brooklyn. He's been around the league enough. I, I'm not sure how hard he would coach. I don't know what his style would be. You know, and that's the thing when you're hiring an assistant coach, you really, you're not sure what you're getting until he comes in here and puts the whistle in his mouth. I actually think Steve Clifford is a great candidate, but I don't think he is one uh, in Portland. But if you're looking for a guy to fix the defense, that's, you know, someone you could potentially uh, start with. Um, Jody Allen being the owner, how does that play any role in the future of this franchise? Is she... Is her philosophies, are her philosophies any different than what Paul Allen's were? Well, I'll tell you the big difference, Chris, is that uh, as far as we can tell, she's not, you know, one-tenth as, as involved in the whole thing as Paul was. You know, Paul is a basketball junkie, and he's on the phone every day. He's looking at video. He, he, gets, he, he shows up for draft workouts and looks at video of these guys. I mean, he's so into it, and Paul is a great owner. Uh, Jody uh, wasn't somebody who was a, a regular at Blazer games, you know, before uh, the team fell into her lap, basically. And, and I, I've always been wondering if and when she would consider selling the team, because if you're not really into basketball, uh, why would you have, what, $1.4 or $5 billion tied up in a basketball team if you didn't just really love it or it wasn't just churning out uh, a lot of money. And I think in this case, somebody with her interests, she's uh, very much uh, into charities and involvement with all kinds of worthy causes. Maybe you sell that team and it frees up money to finance uh, some sort of brain institute, uh, which Paul has, or, or whatever cause she's interested in uh, in Seattle. And so I, I, I'm just, I would be kind of waiting for that. I, I have been waiting for it ever since it happened. Before we let you go, Beck and I were debating this on video earlier in the day about, to bring it back to Lillard, like being proactive versus reactive. Like Lillard is yeah. still top five, top 10 player in the NBA. But if, if you, my opinion on this is if you don't believe that you're a championship-level team over the next two or three years when he's going to be in his prime, it's almost malpractice not to look around and try to see if you can get that monster offer from another team. Because, as you know, Damian had a couple injuries this year. I mean, some nicks and bumps along the way. And a guy that takes on that much of the burden offensively, you know, there's going to be a decline at some point. It may not be a steep one, but as you look at the decline... And you look at the contract, which is fifty plus million in two thousand twenty-five. You know he becomes a little bit less tradable every year that something like this happens. Now the counter argument is, like, you know, the Portland market may be okay with 
having Damian Lillard and being a very good team, but not a great team, not a championship level team. As I look, I I came up in Boston. I watched what Danny Ainge did when he broke apart the Celtics when they were a second round type of playoff team with Pierce and KG and with Rondo. Now they're different players. They're older than what Lillard is, not on the level as Lillard is. But where do you stand on that? Like about the responsibility of being proactive in a situation like this, or is it, you know, you've been in Portland a long time. Is this, does the market prefer just having this guy as an iconic Portland figure, even if it means you know, you're you're kind of capped out at what you can do in terms of playoff success. Uh, you know, Chris, that's a, a great question. And I'm kind of on your side on this. I've always been that guy that says, trade him a year early rather than a year late. And I think that's always in any sport been a good philosophy. But I, I, I think the problem with doing that here is he's become such an iconic figure outside of basketball in this market. He's won all the community service awards you could ever win. He's won all those things. He's a great person. I don't think there's any question about that. And, and I'm very cautious about saying that about any athlete, but I think he is. And, and I think he's valuable to the community in that regard. But, but this team has gone a long, long time without a trip to the finals. And um, it's, um, it's a situation where I think in another, I would say two years, I'd give it two years, Chris. And if it doesn't happen that they get to the finals, then I think you might see a move considered. You won't see it for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. But I think in a couple of years with a new coach, if Damian isn't seeing a trip to the finals, he'll probably be ready at that time too. And look, I've seen them all traded and people tell me, oh, the fans would go crazy. If you're a good GM, you don't really care if the fans will go crazy. You do what's right for your team. They traded Clyde Drexler, okay? They traded Jim Paxson. Uh, they let Bill Walton go. They, they've done all kinds of things with great players. So that's all in play, I think. Just not right now at this point. Yeah, fans ultimately root for the laundry, right? Like they're, they're rooting for the jersey. And if you yes. are able to be successful, uh, you have to explore deals even if they are uh, – even if they come with short-term ramifications, that's for sure. Uh, Dwight, great to talk to you, man. Great stuff. Thanks for joining us here on the show. It's a pleasure. Fun to be on here with you guys. Behave yourselves now and be nice to each other, okay? <laughs> we'll, we'll try. Chris won't try. I'll try. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER.
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. All right, Howard, let's talk about the LA Clippers for a second because I shocked is not quite a strong enough word that I have for how I'm feeling about the fact the Clippers overcame an 0-2 deficit to win this series against Dallas. I mean, I would have bet every nickel in my pocket. I would have bet my house that down 0-2 the Clippers would fold, that they were the same Clippers we saw last year cough up that 3-1 lead to Denver in the conference semifinals, the same Clippers that in recent years have not been able to get to the conference uh, finals even, uh, that they didn't have the mental toughness. Well, I stand here dead wrong about the Clippers. Kawhi Leonard showed mental toughness. Ty Lue showed great coaching chops. The role players on that team stepped up I I don't know how to explain it but the way the Clippers came back to win four out of five to win this series color me pretty impressed Howard I mean that that I mean even if you didn't pick the Clippers coming into the series you could not have had confidence in them going down 0-2 going back to Dallas to come back and win this series well so you're eating your words right now or your impressions your your judgments about the Clippers I you know, two weeks from now, I might be eating my words because my feeling, as you know, was people are judging this team too harshly. They're judging them through a prism of one bad postseason last year in the bubble in a weird-ass season at a time when Paul George and Kawhi Leonard had still barely, you know, exchanged phone numbers as teammates. And so to me, 
Like, the jury was still out, but did I view them through, at least with a little bit of suspicion? <laughs> yeah, and when they were down 0-2 in this series, did I think it was probably over, or even at 3-2? Yes, admittedly, even as I have defended them and said, we can't rush to judgment, they haven't been together that long, let's not get uh, hypercritical. I, I still, yeah, at that point, 0-2, 3-2, they're looking kind of cooked. Now, a couple things happen along the way, Chris, and... Part of this is the Mavericks, right? It's always it's always a little from both sides. The Clippers did demonstrate incredible mental toughness and flexibility. Um, Lou making the the adjustment to go small ball on the fly and then sticking with that, having Batum in the starting lineup instead of Zubac, worked out great. Some of it's just that Kawhi just decided, okay, hell with all this. I'm 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 going at Luca at both ends. You know, I'm I'm you know, well, I'm going at him defensively and I'm going to take on the load offensively. I'm I'm going to put this on my back, make sure we don't lose. There's some of that too. And sometimes desperation just brings that out. And then some of it is just the Mavericks got further than I think they even had a right to given that they have one kind of all-consuming star in Luca and very little around him right now, or at least nothing that you can really rely on. So there's a little bit of Dallas gagging, too. Let's, let's be clear. And that's not to take away from the Clippers. Like, they had to, to suck it up and, 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 and rally back. So that was impressive. And I do think we should now put aside this, this notion of them as mentally weak or softer than the other stuff. And that's the part where two weeks from now, you might be laughing at me again if they gag against the Jazz. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but... I think they're going to be the rare, you know, team coming out of the 4-5 slot to possibly be. I haven't looked at the odds, but I think they might actually be favored in this series against the top-seeded Jazz. Well, it's, I mean, that comes down to Mike Conley, right, to me. And it's a bigger-picture look at the Jazz. I do think while it's impressive what the Clippers did, we can't – this season not a success unless they get to the conference finals. It's not. Like, they, they have to at least get that far with this roster. You've got two – all NBA-level talents in Kawhi and Paul George, good depth, a good coach. You've got to get to the conference finals. And if they go down to the Jazz in five or six games, and I honestly, I mean, let me ask you this first. Like, did what you saw from the Clippers make you believe that they should be the favorites against the Jazz? Let's assume health of Mike Conley in this series. But do you go into this series with the Clippers thinking that they're the favorites? Yes. In fact, I do. Yes. Really? Um, okay. That's, and that's no okay. disrespect to the Jazz. Okay? Like, we always have to, yeah, we always have to qualify that, that because otherwise it's just assumed yeah. Yeah. you hate okay. the Jazz, you, you're, you're, you're a, a, a big market bully, you hate small market, and all that crap. Um, it doesn't always work out this way, Chris, but in this league, generally speaking, in a playoff series, you go with the team with the best player. Kawhi Leonard is by far by far the best player in this series among him, Paul George, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert. That's not a controversial statement. Kawhi Leonard over the last couple of years has occasionally vied for the mythical title of best player in the NBA if we assume that LeBron is no longer the best player in the NBA, which at his best LeBron still is, by the way. Um, Kawhi's, <laughs> Kawhi's really good. We just saw it the last few games again. The dude can play at an absolute MVP caliber level and be dominant at both ends of the court in a way that Donovan Mitchell cannot, in a way that Rudy Gobert cannot. And, uh, you know, I've thought about this all season, right? You and I both take turns uh, hanging out with the, uh, the folks at the Zone uh, Sports Network in Utah, uh, chat with our guys Gordon and Jake, 
And we've talked about this off and on. And the thing that I've been concerned about for the Jazz from the beginning is what happens if and when you go up against either the Lakers or the Clippers? Because in one case, you're dealing with LeBron and Anthony Davis. In the other case, you're dealing with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And I look at who the Jazz have to guard those positions. Who is matching up against Kawhi Leonard? Who's like the Jazz have a phenomenal team defense, but individually, who's knocking Kawhi Leonard off his game? Royce O'Neal, Boyan Bogdanovich, Joe Ingles. Like, seriously, who's who? Like, that is a problem for them. And normally the, the answer to that becomes then, well, but they can't stop our guy either. Well, between Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, plus pesky Pat Beverly, and Terrence Mann, who's really active. Like, they got a bunch of guys they could throw at Donovan Mitchell and make him less efficient. And, look, they've got Mike Conley now. They've got Jordan Clarkson. They've got other places to go for offense. But a lot depends on Donovan Mitchell creating for himself and his teammates. And so, I think the Clippers have a better chance of throttling Donovan Mitchell than the Jazz do of doing the same to Kawhi and Paul George. I think they can do an effective job against Donovan Mitchell, but Donovan Mitchell has more weapons at his disposal than Luka Doncic. Oh, for sure. Like, Donovan Mitchell is going to be looking around. He's going to be looking around at one of the best three-point shooting teams in the league. Uh, Guys he trusts, Joe Ingles, Clarkson, all the guys you mentioned who are capable of giving you 15 to 20 on any given night. Um, I'm I'm confident that their offense is going to get going against the Clippers. And defensively, you're right. Like, they don't have the individual defenders that can match up with Paul George or Kawhi. But they've got that big guy in the back that's going to make sure that all those shots are probably going to be jumpers. You're not going to be able to get to the paint in the same way you did against Dallas. I mean, Dallas was basically playing a 2-3 zone in that series. That's not what Utah is going to do. I mean, they're going to have Rudy Gobert patrolling that middle, and there's no better defender, interior defender in the league, than Gobert. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty confident Utah's chances to win this series. I, I, I give the Clippers credit for rallying, but... You know, it goes back, Howard, to, like, the argument. I, I, I go back to this all the time. Like, when Shaq said what he did to Donovan Mitchell, like, I don't think you're the guy that could take a team to the next level or whatever it was that he said. Yeah. You know, Donovan Mitchell now has the guys around him that should enable him to get there. Like, before he didn't. Like, in the bubble last year, Bogdanovich was out. Mike Conley was in and out of the lineup. They still had a lot of drama from uh, what happened at the end of the regular season. This year has been largely drama-free. In the four games that Mitchell has played in the playoffs, he's been great, averaging almost 30 points per game. And the guys around him have been excellent. So I just think the Jazz are a complete team. Whereas going up against the the Mavericks, it was Luka and whoever else might be able to get hot on any given night. This is a team that's probably going to give you five or six guys that go double figures. And I think that's going to be tough for the Clippers to contend with. There's no question. You made a bunch of great points there. Um, One is the Jazz just have better overall weapons and balance uh, than the Mavericks, by far. So I, I'm not leaning toward the Clippers because necessarily of what they did against the, the Mavericks and think they can apply it to the Jazz. The Jazz are a much, much better team than the Mavericks. Um, what I am saying is I don't know that what the Jazz have done that's made them successful to this point is going to work in a best-of-seven series as well against a team with the Clippers' kind of firepower at the top. Now, the, the Clippers, it's not like a super deep team, but they've got pieces, and... It's, you know, they've, they've found the way to get the most out of, I think, the group that they have now. It's kind of evolving as they go. You saw that even in switching to small ball. And by the way, I'll be very curious to see how they line up against the Jazz. Is it going to be Zubach 
against Gobert, or do you open up with the small ball lineup with Batum and now spread it out and maybe you neutralize Rudy Gobert? And that's, that's, you know, that's a common theme with this Jazz team, too, is teams have occasionally been able to play him off the floor. I think the Clippers have the potential to do that. I don't know if that's what they will do. We'll see soon enough if, that, if that's a strategy they'll employ and whether it's successful. But um, if the Clippers were still kind of sputtering along, and look, it did take them seven games. I, I don't want to downplay that. The team that we saw the first few games of this series, I would have thought, you know what? They might have better top-level talent, but they are going to get outplayed, outplayed by a Jazz team that just plays really well together at both ends. The Clippers we just saw the last couple of games? The Kawhi Leonard we saw the last couple of games? Not too many people are stopping that guy. Um, I, I think, you know, out of respect for the Jazz, I'd, I'd say it's a long series. It's like Clippers in seven. But I do think it's the Clippers. And I don't even think it should be considered that great of an upset because I think the Clippers were better than their record. Well, I'm taking the Jazz in seven, so in a couple of weeks we'll be able to look back on this and uh, see who uh, was smarter. Um, let's talk though briefly about the Mavericks out for the second time in a row in the first round. Luca's playoff numbers are ridiculous. Like he's already like in, in the top twenty of certain lists of points scored, double doubles, whatever it is. He he is putting up some monster postseason numbers. Uh, all have been for naught up until this point. By the way, he's doing it against... He's played the Clippers twice in the postseason, and he's gone up against all world defenders and Kawhi yes. and Paul George, which makes it even more impressive yes. what he's done. But they bowed out in the first round a couple of times. And it's not a reason to panic at this point, because Luka's only 22. The pieces around him are still relatively young. But you're at the point now, if you're Dallas, where you really have to dig in here. Like, you have got to put guys around Luka Doncic that enable his greatness to be capitalized on. It's It can't just be the Lucas show out there. Like, Tim Hardaway Jr. was very good for this Mavericks team. Porzingis was dreadful in the postseason for Dallas. He's under contract long-term. Jalen Brunson was basically unplayable in this series. At least, that's how Rick Carlisle seemed to feel, especially in that Game 7 when it was Trey Burke getting the bulk of those backup minutes. What do you do if you're Dallas? Like, what's your... What's your next step, both this offseason and beyond, to get the right pieces around Luka Doncic? Yeah, I mean, look, the good news for the Mavericks is this. Um, they have up to, this is uh, by Bobby Marks' calculations over at ESPN, our good friend Bobby Marks. His calculations are that they could have up to $35 million in cap room. That's not counting re-signing Tim Hardaway Jr., who you assume they will go all out to re-sign. Um, so that's without Tim Hardaway Jr. That's without Josh Richardson, assuming that he, de- uh, I think it's a player option he can decline. And that's uh, without Willie Cauley-Stein. So it's, it would be losing three rotation players, nominally three rotation players in one case, um, to get to 35 mil. They were lined up this summer, as the Miami Heat were, to make the run at Giannis or Oladipo or you know, all the guys who have just fallen, you know, come off the board. So could still have Oladipo. Uh, yeah, uh, pro- probably not where they're going with that. Um, it's not a great free agent class, but for a team that already has a stud like Luka, all right, you really want to go get a second star. We'll talk about Porzingis in a minute about the fact yeah. that he's not that guy. But if what if you can just get like the really nice ensemble around Luka, could they at least advance a round or two without a second star? Yeah, because he's that great. Like Luka is at almost LeBron levels of being able to elevate a supporting cast. So here's who's out there that, that I think are gettable. DeMar DeRozan, 
just had a really nice offensive season. Perennial overlooked. Great in the mid-range. Um, could, could take some of the scoring load off. Kyle Lowry, if you want another ball handler who also can play off the ball, knock down threes, defend. He'd certainly be an upgrade over, over you know, their other guards. Um, do you make a run at a John Collins, restricted free agent? Uh, Will Barton is on the market. Duncan Robinson also restricted if you need another shooter to stretch the defense. Norm Powell. Spencer Dinwiddie's an interesting option. as another guy who can play both on and off the ball and guard both positions in the backcourt. So, like, there's, you know, Norm Powell. I can't remember if I mentioned. Um, Rashawn Holmes, Jared Allen, Mitchell Robinson. I mean, there are, there are bigs that you could put next to, to Porzingis to uh, help defensively with some rim protection and just have another active big body. So, like, I'm not saying all those guys are realistic. I don't know which, which subset of those you could even get if you spent the entire $35 million that direction instead of bringing back Tim Hardaway Jr. Uh, I just think there are options. And so if you're capped out and you're just stuck, that's a problem. They do have some flexibility. They could also make a lopsided trade using that cap room if somebody comes available. So that's the, the good news. The bad news is they're out the two draft picks that they sent to the Knicks for Porzingis. Those picks, even if they're low, you know, hey, they're, they're cheap trade chips. They're things that you use to induce a team to make a deal, and those, they don't have those two picks. They have other picks. Like they're, you know, and after this draft... One of them will already have been used, which frees you up a little bit about future picks, right? So they're not, they're not overly encumbered by either you know, the draft picks being out or the cap. They're fine, but they do need to upgrade. So um, that brings us to Porzingis, but I've been talking a while. So what's your feeling on can this team, does it have a path to rapid improvement? Well, I, I don't know if it's rapid improvement unless it's Tim Hardaway plus one of the guys that you mentioned, because I think Tim Hardaway had the kind of season where you're led to believe that he can thrive in a role as a third or fourth option opposite Luka Doncic. What it comes down to me is, uh, for me, is what is Porzingis? Yeah. Like, is he the number two option on a championship-level team? Um, You saw flashes of it during the regular season, you saw nothing of it in the playoffs where Porzingis, I thought, was at his best when he was kind of in that dunker spot and cutting to the rim. And whenever the Mavericks could find, whether it was Boban or somebody else in the middle, he got a lot of easy looks at the rim just cutting to the basket. I'm kind of over, Howard, the number of threes Porzingis puts up. Like, it just, like, it felt like, at least in this series, that Porzingis was shooting threes because he knew his opportunities were limited. Like he wasn't, he wasn't getting the touches and the looks that he ordinarily would get. So when he caught the ball in the wing and had an opportunity to shoot threes, he just shot him up there. He fired him up there. And look, it's a, it's a huge element to his game being seven foot three and able to shoot threes at the numbers that he's able to do. He shot thirty seven percent from three during the regular season. That's a real number. Attempted six uh, threes per game in the regular season. Seven per game in the year before. These are real numbers. But you know this this was not a good postseason. For Kristaps Porzingis, and you can kind of add to this mix all you want, and hopefully the Mavs can get one of those players you mentioned and bring Tim Hardaway back. But I think their success is going to be tied to Porzingis being able to perform in the playoffs. And so, so did it look to you like it was just maybe a bad matchup, injuries coming up? I mean, like what do you believe in Porzingis as being that guy? Do you think he needs to be that guy with this team? 
we've seen that he can be, right? Like, the reason that the Mavericks made that trade in the first place, and by the way, they didn't give up much to get him. I mean, they gave up uh, three nominal players, none of whom are still with the Knicks, and a couple of late picks. So the problem for the Mavericks isn't the trade for Porzingis. The, the problem is the max contract. And the Porzingis that they initially got um, had the potential to be a really great number two to, to Luca and, and a great running mate for him. This season's really weird, right? So his, his playoffs were a friggin' disaster. You can't even sugarcoat it in any way, way, shape, or form. His playoffs were a disaster. But in the regular season, this is what, Luke, this is what uh, Porzingis did. 20 points a game, almost 9 rebounds a game, 1.6 assists, 1.3 blocks, 37% from 3, 53% from 2. It was a, statistically a pretty strong season. Um, in fact, I think by PER, it was his best season, uh, for whatever that's worth. And then I looked up, like, how many guys in the league this year went 20 and 9, or I think 20 points, 8 rebounds, and at least one block a game? It's five guys. The other four are Giannis, Embiid, Carl Anthony Towns, and Christian Wood. Um, I'd rather have those other guys than Porzingis at this stage, but nevertheless, those stats were only put up by those other guys. So... And that doesn't count for the defense. It does not account for the fact that defensively, as a shot blocker, as a rim protector, as just a mobile defender, he seems to have lost quite a bit. Um, he was just he was just standing around yeah. the paint just, just, during the series. Yeah. Like I saw way too many anecdotally, I saw way too many offensive rebounds by yes. the Clippers where Porzingis is kind of standing yes. there, like waiting for the ball. You're seven foot three and presumably a little bit athletic. Like you've got to be more active yeah. on the glass. So he had that off-season meniscus surgery, right? And then he missed a bunch uh, early in the season. And he had some strong points during the season, clearly. Again, the numbers are what they are. Almost 20 and 9 with the block a game. Like, okay, statistically, he looked fine. Observationally, he often looked kind of limited. And so does he just need another off-season to recover from that knee surgery? Or is he as a 7-3 kind of gawky movement guy is he always going to have injuries is he always going to have health issues like those are the things you don't really know and you know is there still like he made an all-star team at what 22 um he's almost 26 now is there still the outline of an all-star caliber player there yeah um he has to stay healthy whether that's on him and conditioning whether that's just bad luck whether that's on the mavericks to 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 work with them whatever but then there's this other element too where he seems to pout a lot. He seems to not be particularly happy with his role there as the number two to Luca and Luca's ball domination. And, you know, um, whether that's a legitimate gripe or not, it's, it's not a great um, sign that, that he, of, of, of his demeanor and, and his, his lack of happiness there. And he's untradeable. I mean, like, yeah, we should, shouldn't say untradeable. Everybody's ultimately tradable. We've seen so many bad contracts get moved. But um, not an easy-to-trade deal. And so your, your best path forward for the Mavericks, aside from, as I say, maybe you find some way to, to, to work with that cap room and upgrade the rest of the roster. But when it comes to having a second star, that potential is still there on the roster. It's, it, like, it is not, Porzingis is not yet 26 yet. The idea that this is just who he is, and now that's, that's him for the rest of his career, is, is, is kind of ludicrous. Um, we've already seen him be an all-star. He has to stay healthy. He has to, you know, maybe fix his attitude a little bit. Um, maybe they need to find a better way to use him. But, like, this is not the, the uh, final statement. This, this 
uh, seven-game playoff series is not the final assessment of of Kristaps Porzingis. Um, that's silly. Nobody in the league would say that. Um, I also would not want to be married to that contract for the next three years. Yeah, I think as much as anything else, a healthy and more productive Porzingis is the Mavericks' best path to championship-level improvement, or at least deeper playoff-level improvements. I think he is the key to that right now. And without a draft pick this year and you know, with the expectation that your draft capital is not going to be great in terms of where it's positioned in years to come, Porzingis, I think, has got to be the guy. He's got to continue to take steps forward. To your point, he clearly can, but I think he, ha- he absolutely has to for the Mavs not to get on that kind of Portland path where you have one guy doing absurd things, but your team not having the level of success it needs to have. Uh, before we go, I want to get your take on everything that happened in Boston last week. I weighed in on this with Ryan McDonough on uh, the bonus pod last week. People can check that out if they want. Uh, but I, your take on kind of the departure of Danny Ainge, the elevation of Brad Stevens, the fact they didn't look outside the organization, where they go from here. Give me your thoughts on the Celtics situation right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's kind of alarming, to be honest. Um, you know, Danny moving on, as, as you know, you know, and as you had told me, that is not that big of a shock. But he's the guy who has set the agenda for them for 18 years, including a championship, including an incredible rebuild in the wake of that championship team eroding, including some incredible trades to build that championship team and then to get this core with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And to lose somebody of that importance with that kind of track record who has been in charge for 18 years, it's going to be... Um, you're going to feel that that uh, tremor regardless. Like, that is a big shift. Um, I remember when Jerry West left the Lakers, handed it off to Mitch Kupchak, who had been by his side for, you know, whatever, 15, 20 years by that point. So it was almost seamless. But it's still a big deal when you lose somebody of that stature. And Danny Ainge, I don't want to analogize too strongly, but he he meant a lot to the Celtics as, as Jerry West did to the Lakers. So there's that. That he's leaving it all is, is one thing. Who he hands it off to or who, he, who succeeds him is the next big thing. And I would have felt a lot better about the Celtics on two levels if they had just opened this up and held an actual search. You wrote about this very strongly last week. They should have chased a Sam Presti. I would say they should have chased Masai Ujiri, who, under, unlike Sam Presti, is not even under contract right now. Like, there's some weird thing going on in Toronto where they have not even decided collectively where they're heading. And Messiah Jury is, is as yet, as I, I believe as we taped this on Monday, still unsigned. Why wouldn't you go and chase an established, highly successful executive, like whether it's Presti or Masai, whether it's somebody's number two, somebody who's been working in a front office a long time, and instead, before you've even announced Danny's gone, you've already decided that Brad Stevens, who has no front office experience is going to be the, the GM and now you've or the team president and now you've also taken a guy who was one of the better coaches in the league and you've taken him off the bench so now you've got to replace your your A level coach um, so I'm not I don't like any part of this and I especially don't like that they they did this all without even considering outside options because they didn't make any attempt to diversify a candidate pool because they had no candidate pool I don't believe that they've ever had a person of color leading basketball operations for the Boston Celtics. I don't want to go too far down the road of what Kyrie Irving was saying about Boston before the series, but there is 
you know, the, these are these are discussions that were already out there in the midst of the playoffs, and I don't think it's a great look in the wake of all that. Whether you thought those discussions were fair or unfair, it's not a great look to then turn around and elevate the white head coach to team executive without even considering other candidates, especially when there are plenty of qualified folks out there. Um, I, I, it's, I, it's just, it's a little disappointing. Uh, maybe more than a little disappointing. Um, I don't know what the league office thinks. I can't imagine they're all that thrilled with it either. But they should be in for at least as much criticism as the Timberwolves got for hiring Chris Finch midseason without a search and without considering any, any black candidates. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to the discussion, like, should there be the NFL's version of the Rooney Rule in place when it comes to executive positions or coaching positions? That's not something I think the NBA is comfortable with right now. Um, you know, the, the elevation of Brad Stevens, as I said last week, it just feels like ownership was just comfortable with him. Like, they they believed in him. They believe in his basketball acumen, and over a period of months, not days, months, they were convinced that this was the right move. I mean, I think Danny Ainge helped convince them of that. I think Danny Ainge wanted Brad Stevens to be his successor. Brad Stevens... Whatever Danny Ainge's legacy is in Boston, Brad Stevens continues that. Like, he he takes over the front office. He probably keeps most of it intact, and they continue on this path that Danny Ainge put them on. If they had brought in a Masai Ujiri or a Sam Presti, they might do things entirely differently. They might decide to take things in a very different direction. Um, I just, I, I keep going back to Sam because Sam is from the area, and... Sam probably looks at the Boston job, maybe not a dream job, but something he probably aspired to have at one point you know, during his young life. I mean, he grew up in the area, played college ball at Emerson. There's, there's strong ties to the Boston community for Sam Presti. And if you have the ability to hire a guy widely viewed as a top three GM in all of basketball, who, while he hasn't won a championship, not as a GM anyway, brought a small market team to the mountaintop, you know, as close as you possibly can get to it, to not explore that to me is, is just crazy. It's just crazy. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously I agree, but I think it's, I just think it's broader than that. It's not just that maybe you could have had Presti, it's that you could have had him or maybe Masai Ujiri or maybe somebody else. Like, you didn't even consider what those other options were. And, you know, the, 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 the GM job, the team president job, it's a complicated job and, it, and it, it's, it's only grown more so over the last 10 years. And it's a completely different skill set and knowledge base than what a head coach does. And so, look, I don't doubt that Brad Stevens is, we we know he's super bright and he's capable and he might turn into a a fantastic team president for all we know. It doesn't mean it was necessarily the best move at the time or that the process wasn't flawed because the process was flawed. And I don't don't think anybody should, you know, even argue that point. Um, and this is a really critical moment for them with two young stars, but they're kind of capped out. They're kind of stuck with what they've got. You're going to need somebody who's really creative and has brings new ideas. And I think that's that's the exact time when you should go outside the organization and look for somebody who has a different vantage point. That's the perfect time to consider that. And, you know, we've seen this a lot of times, too, in the last few years, Chris. Sometimes teams will go and hire or uh, interview a massive field of coaches or GM candidates just also for the sake of getting new ideas. They know they're not going to hire 
You know, you don't, you don't need 20 candidates. You probably only need five. But you talk to 20 in part because you're learning about them. And sometimes they're bringing ideas to the table as you're interviewing them. And you go, oh, you know what? We might not hire that guy. But I think we, they, made a, they raised a good point about the way we've been doing things, right? So take, have that intellectual exercise. And they didn't. They denied themselves that. Um, I, I, think, I think it's all very unfortunate. Yeah. And look, you, you can do a search and not risk losing Brad Stevens, who had a long-term yes. contract to yes. be that goat. So there really wasn't a huge downside to exploring uh, outside options. But we'll see. Another thing, like three or four years from now, maybe the Celtics look like geniuses. Maybe, you know, us lowly writers turn out to be correct. <laughs> Howard, good stuff, man. We'll talk next week. Thanks, Maddox. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening.